Welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. In this episode, we'll get into the weeds of anti-freeway activism. You may have heard the story of how Portlanders successfully turned back the Mountain Hood Freeway Plan and removed a major downtown highway in the 1970s. About 40 years later, activists rallied again to fight the Columbia River Crossing, which was a plan to widen I-5 between Portland and Vancouver. The latest fight is being waged against the I-5 Rose Quarter Project, right in Portland's backyard. Despite a state that is literally on fire due to climate change and the fact that the largest share of greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon comes from transportation, the Oregon Department of Transportation wants to add lanes to I-5 between Interstate 84 and the Fremont Bridge. But standing between ODOT and their $800 million project is a plucky, all-volunteer nonprofit named No More Freeways. In this episode, I interview one of their leaders, a 33-year-old community organizer named Aaron Brown. He spent four years building an opposition campaign against ODOT's project that includes thousands of followers, hundreds of donors, three lawsuits, and a lot of snarky tweets. We talked about how he became the face of the freeway fight, why he doesn't trust ODOT, what it will take to stop building freeways, how he's navigated racial tensions around his activism, and more. So Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Here we are sort of four years into No More Freeways. I know you have a birthday coming up. We'll get to that at the end of the show though, so you can give a shout out for the details on that. I'm really curious sort of how did you end up as the face of No More Freeways? That's a great question, Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> uh, definitely spent a couple a couple long nights wondering how we got ourselves into this mess over the last four years, um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, so I, I, I grew up here in the suburbs of Portland. Um, Oregonians are like salmon you leave and then you find that the big ocean is salty and full of mean people trying to eat you. You know, uh, I remember getting really excited in, in high school about this notion of why aren't there sidewalks to my high school uh, growing up in the suburbs. And I always got really interested in these questions of urban planning. Uh, and when I returned from college, I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to go save the world. I'm going to go change the world through urban planning. And, you know, I had an internship at a, at a government agency and I, you know, I definitely spent some time around a lot of really smart technical people and, you know, I was always sort of on the edge of always, I'm going to go to grad school and get a MERP or a planning degree. But it became really prom- pre- like obvious to me over my couple years back in town, you know, bouncing around a lot of different nonprofits and stuff that, you know, the planning world has a lot of technical solutions to offer, but the stuff I was really interested in were more the political and, and policy questions that uh, a planner doesn't. A planner gets paid for someone else to solve on someone else's terms. The planners are not the ones themselves that are determining who shows up at that meeting, who's invited to that meeting, what questions are we asking the planners to address, right? Are we asking the planner to figure out how to minimize people not finding parking? Are we asking the planners to, you know, address latent white supremacy? Are we asking planners to uh, reduce carbon emissions. Those are all different questions and different government agencies and different consultants, you know, get asked to do that stuff. So I came back to Portland thinking I really wanted to be, you know, your stereotypical, this was 2011. So Portlandia was out, right? Like I, I was so thrilled to be living a block off of Mississippi and spending $300 a month in rent and like, you know, going to pedal palooza rides. And, um, you know, I, I, and I still, I, I pay a lot more in rent now, but I, I, I still, uh, I'm excited about, you know, the whole Portland bike scene stuff, but the more time I spent in it, the more the intersections of it led me to understanding my relationship to the roads and the surrounding universe um, and the privileges that I have to be in these spaces, as well as, you know, yikes, that one time when you get hit by a car, it really changes your mindset about street safety, right? Um, and realizing, you know, I'm fortunate that 
my bike commute is one of the is the most dangerous thing I do because it's in my neighborhoods in inner Portland is actually pretty safe. And, um, you know, I got involved with Oregon walks. I was the board president of Oregon walks from 2013 through 2017 and really taking those experiences of what it meant to be a bicyclist, but looking at it through this whole lens of, well, not everyone bikes, but pretty much everybody walks and the ways in which, you know, I would sit on some of these committees as like a doe eyed eager young person and all these adults would be sitting in the room rubbing their beard, like, we need more streetcars. And then I would be spending my evenings like volunteering at David Douglas High School, trying to cross Stark Street in 2012 with seven uh, um, high school kids, none of them white, none of them driving. And just that dichotomy of, you know, how in Portland we are simultaneously full of a bunch of, you know, stoogy boomers thinking about like building five more Pearl districts, but. Uh, not even caring about the affordable housing, just being like, oh, this is the urban form that we need. And meanwhile, in the same city, like seven miles away, it's a death trap for kids to walk to the largest, most diverse high school in the state of Oregon. And Right, right. So, um, you know, th- those kind of experiences started radicalizing me in a lot of ways of just understanding our transportation justice system through the lens of like what I sort of assumed the problems were. And the more time I spent time doing some of these different community advocacy things, the more time I learned what problems people in Portland and the region were facing. Yeah, and I noticed too, you mentioned walks and, and Oregon walks and, and sort of the the latter part of your time being really more involved with Oregon walks. I noticed that you actually uh, led like a September event walk, which was related to fighting freeways. I think you walked down to like Tom McCall Waterfront Park or something just, just maybe, I, I'm assuming you talk about mountain freeway stuff and harbor drive removal. So it's almost like you, you were just chomping at the bit to get to this freeway fight so uh you know what about this i5 project and you know ultimately no more freeways what what about that particular animated you so much to you know devote yourself to this yeah um they're terrible (laughs) freeways are terrible they're so expensive jonathan the planet's on fire we want to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on fossil fuel infrastructure uh and it gives kids asthma i mean it's so bad right um, you know, working on with Oregon walks, you'd go to some of these pedestrian vigils and you'd be out in East Portland and it'd be the saddest thing you've ever been to. And then you'd be like, wow, why haven't we put a crosswalk here between this like affordable housing complex full of senior citizens, like Russian ladies and a bus stop. And the answer was, oh, it's ODOT's road and they just don't give a damn. And that crosswalk was only going to cost a hundred thousand dollars at most for the most nice crosswalk and, you know, just basic pothole maintenance you could possibly imagine for East Portland roads on a November night, you know, when it's dark at 4 p.m. and cars are going 40 miles an hour, right? Like, this is yeah. this is a dangerous situation. And learning and recognizing that, like, wow, this state en- entity just does like, – there's no opportunity to put political pressure on somebody to fix this. Like, it's bad enough it's mm-hmm. happened. It's even worse that there's you can't fix it right? It's like school shootings. It's like these are these random acts of violence that we just sort of do not have any mechanism to hold anyone accountable to. You know, when 2017 came around, right after House Bill 2017 passed, the bipartisan legislature, you know, um, I had just finished working on some campaigns. I had just passed to school bonds and I was a bit underemployed at the time and was looking for, you know, what my next gig was going to be. Um, and I, No More Freeways never became a gig, to be clear, but uh, it was more of a, like, I have time on my hands and, uh, the legend, the shoulders on on which all of us stand, Chris Smith had asked a bunch of us to come to uh, Lucky Lab and talk about fighting the freeway. And 
as I was chatting with all of those folks, it was evident that uh, there's a lot of smart people that had a lot of really good ideas. Um, but there's a particular pedagogical skill set of like running a campaign of like, how do you get media? How do you community organize? How do you show like clipboards, you know, like social media, Twitter, like um, yeah. what are the meetings coming up, the government meetings in which you need to go track down and make sure your elected officials hear from you. And, and those are mm. skills that I've sort of developed between my time at Oregon Walks, my time with uh, Next Up Oregon, previously the bus project when I was there working on the gas tax in 2016 and, and then the school bond in 2017. Um, I, it was one of those, it's, it's really to, to get the, the blunt answer of your question, Jonathan, it was sort of a like, well, I had some time on my hands. I had all of the skills necessary that I realized had not ever really been channeled in this direct direction. Hmm. And, and for as terrible as freeways are, a lot of our uh, beloved community partners tiptoe around the responsibility of addressing it for reasons that I'm not here to critique anybody because we all have our different politics to play and different organizations are, you know, our, our realm, even, even the people we think of as like the big moderate folks that don't go hard enough on bike pad transit stuff, they're still the good guys fighting other good fights <laughs> and they have yeah. to pick and choose how many good fights they choose to wage, right? And yeah, part of it, No More Freeways is about building the energy that everyone feels, okay, I'm going to chip into that. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that in particular. I'm, I've been kind of sort of fascinated. I mean, one things, one of the things I do is I just feel like I'm an observer of all this really amazing activism that happens in, in, in Portland and the region, the state and stuff. And so one of the things is I've been looking at No More Freeways and the work that you all have been doing is is that style. And I feel like you know, you're doing something a little different. No more freeways to me feels different because it is sort of, it feel like maybe it's being run more like a political campaign. There's a directness to your style that, um, I know, uh, you know, exists obviously, but I, in terms of my purview of looking at these transportation issues, I don't think any, we'd really sort of seen that style in this realm in terms of, like you said, coming out on Twitter, you know, being direct, really saying the things that sort of polite Portland advocacy isn't saying and doesn't typically say, you know, so I wonder, is that, is that just Aaron being Aaron or is that like an intentional choice to kind of shake things up given the, um, you know, given the size of the, of the foe that you face in the sort of freeway industrial complex? So like, you know, what's the sort of thinking behind your specific style of, of, of activism? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a jerk sometimes on the internet, but also I think that like the goal that we've come up with is, uh, benevolent antagonism. Is kind of the phrase that we've you know come up with which is to say that like you know there are many agencies and individuals that agree with us that some of these projects are terrible or at the very least they would rather be funding something else and and uh maybe they were supportive or neutral to start off with and four years of odot shenanigans has really worn them down and four years of 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 coverage and skepticism has really changed the dynamic um and i i think that you know we have to be a little militant on some of this stuff, right? And and I think that the militancy needs to be aimed at the institutions more than the individuals. And I, I don't claim to be perfect on that. And, and we've all, you know, we've been, it's been a learning process of figuring out what is mm. what does that tone look like and how do you target the right institutions? Um, right. You know, because the problem here is there is a bipartisan coalition of lobbyists that are part of the freeway industrial complex that, you know, have tons of money to throw around to hire really good consultants to make fancy videos to put, you know, spend 10 times what we spend on Facebook ads and stuff. You know, you'll just be scrolling through your phone and you'll see these beautiful ads that ODOT did, right? Uh, they're getting mm -hmm. op-eds in the newspapers. 
And 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 those are real skills, right? It takes somebody that knows how to work community groups. It takes someone who knows how to write something really well. Um, so as opposed to like me getting paid to do that for bad guys, I'm just kind of doing it for because to pay my rent on this planet and uh and and because as a transportation advocate as a social justice advocate as a climate advocate as a housing advocate as someone that has spent a lot of time in all of these different universes i see the explicit ways that the status quo of the freeway industrial complex directly hinders our ability to build the bigger world that we want as opposed to the green new deal i always say like the freeways are the great old deal and they have to be retired to fund the good stuff that we want to see yeah, I feel, I feel like you're sort of a, often you're saying things that these agencies and maybe uh, other advocates, uh, you know, electeds uh, are they, they can't say. Right. Yeah. No, with a, the Key and Peel uh, skit where uh, Obama's anger management translator. Right. Like yeah, right. Uh, it, it's right. So there is a little bit of that. Right. So I'm assuming like do you, you get texts or DMs or something from agency people that are like, oh, I'm so glad you're saying that. The short answer is yes. It, yeah. It's definitely <laughs> a, you know, people have their own careers and their own strategic times that they chip in. And, and sometimes people are on our side for one thing. And then, yeah. you know, they're like, well, this other, you know, the 205 freeway stuff that's coming up, like, this is already a done deal. I can't really stick my neck out into this. Mm. But, mm. you know, there are a lot of bureaucrats at a lot of agencies that have no more freeways buttons in their desks. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's, and it's indicative of, again, like, there is. ODOT is in this ongoing Cold War with Peabot and Metro about, mm. you know, Jonathan, you're reporting over the years, right? Like mm. the, the question of the bike lanes outside of Cleveland High School, the question of like how wide the bike lanes are like over like over I-5, like in North Portland, in, in yeah. your neighborhood. These are pedantic little details that ODOT and Peabot like fight over all of the time. And ODOT just has so much more money and power and, and statewide like oomph that – you know, every ounce of us chipping away at that, like, inevitability that ODOT as the state DOT should be calling all of the shots, not just of mm. the freeways, but of the roads that connect or are near the freeways, and that yeah. the state supremacy of that, like, l- legally is what's relevant. Um, there's no way we build the, like, beautiful na- Portland with dense walkable housing connected by frequent reliable transit and bike lanes and sidewalks unless that, like... N- normative stance gets completely changed yeah and i think no more freeways has has done a good job sort of being that animating force in the ecosystem of just being different louder more direct saying things that other folks aren't able to say or or aren't willing to say i should say so but but in addition to that i i feel like you it wouldn't uh, your work wouldn't is, wouldn't be so impactful if it were just you know aaron brown joe courtright chris smith you know yelling and screaming all the time and i think that you know it seems to me you've made an intentional choice. And if not, I think you've done a, a pretty good job of reaching out and having other messengers carry, you know, your messages. Right. And I, and I think particularly how for, for a while now, no more freeways has reached directly out to young people, uh, young activists. And I know the, the, the physical proximity of Harriet Tubman middle school to I five and the impacts of the project that it sort of makes sense that Harriet Tubman's involved, but we've obviously seen a level of involvement from these youth climate activists, you know, the youth strike with ODOT, and it's just became sort of this like stronger and stronger um, uh, thing with, with working with youth and other, other folks too. I think, you know, Norma Freeways has reached out to, you know, climate justice groups, transportation justice groups uh, in, in a, in a, in a good way. Um, so I just wonder, you know, can you speak to how that sort of like impacted uh, the work and the fight against these freeways? Two thoughts to that. First, um, 
yeah, the message is a lot less important than the medium and the messenger. And uh, having... Uh, I, Chris and I can go chat about the climate implications of every freeway from here on out, right? Like, I remember in 2017 going to an event that was hosted by Business for Better Portland, and it was about transportation. And I was the only person, I was possibly the youngest person in the room. And I raised my hand and was like, can we talk about climate? You guys have been talking for 90 minutes about climate. And, and uh, to their, I mean, the, the elected squirmed a little bit, but they're like, yeah, no, we agree. It's important. And that was 2017. And think about where we are now. And all we can talk about is climate, right? And obviously, like, you know, Portland being thrown into the, the hellscape fires of the couple of uh, fires and heat waves, right? It's part of it. Um, but also, uh, you know, I, I went to one of the first, the inaugural hub launch of Sunrise and just being in a space with all of those young folks. And, you know, I've become the goofy transportation uncle there, which is to say that, like, you know, um, as all these little hub Sunrise hubs across the country are launching, Sunrise is this national organization. The local Portland mm-hmm. hub is, you know, figuring out how they want to engage with stuff. And, you know, being like, look, if you want elected officials to shout about about climate change, 40% of Oregon's carbon emissions come from transportation. We've never had a sustained, holy smokes, what are we doing on climate shouting dynamic directed at like the freeway industrial complex. Would you enjoy doing that? And and they changed the dynamic, right? I mean, those conversations yeah, helped totally. pressure the metro hearings last year in the lead up to the metro transportation measure, you know, um, there's been multiple times where they've gotten that press and attention. Um, but then just to your bigger question, you know, like, um, because I'd worked on school bonds, because I've done um, work with school districts, I, I work with a couple of school districts now, I'm very comfortable going to a PTA. Like, I, the Tubman community, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but like, it's not like ODOT was going to the Tubman community being like, what do you think about this freeway, right? Like, it was Aaron Brown and being like, and part of it is you show up, and and I think this is a lesson I, I would hope anyone that's kind of an aspiring advocate kind of can process and think about, which is that like, you know, I would show up at those PTA meetings at Tubman and I, you know, I thought I was like this young, handsome man that had a bunch of flyers about air pollution and I was going to go chat up all of these friendly parents and most of them are moms and they'll be like, oh, this nice young man, like coming to talk to us about this stuff. Uh, like we, you know, you, you think you're the savior in all of this, like I do, right? It's easy to kind of come with that approach. And then you show up and you're like, yikes, this school, like their math teachers just left. Something something went down. And like, you know, um, PPS is a beautiful institution and there's many specific schools that are going through a lot of stress just due to the, you know, displacement and socioeconomic despair. And this was pre-pandemic at this point, right? And, you know, you can go to that mom and be like, don't you care about the fires that are burning five years from now? like metaphorical fires of like your kids getting more asthma. And they're like, I care about my kid getting algebra because he's going to be in, he's going to be in uh, high school next year. And like, right now he doesn't have a math teacher. Like, come, like, and that level of, you can't just show up and expect people to sign your stuff. You have to listen to what they care about and you have to find common cause. And sometimes you'll just show up and shut up and not say anything and hand out some flyers and be like, I'd love to chat with you in the next couple of weeks. And that's slow and steady work. Like it happens over months, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to build that trust and you have to demonstrate that like you're not just there for the transactional, by the way, come sign on to my freeway thing as much as, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear like PPS that this is how your experience is. Like yeah. tell me more about it. Like people and that are gets more, to, it, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting because to me that gets to the tension or the dynamic, the difference between working a political campaign or, you know, a more traditional campaign where it's like, here's the end date. We got to get this money. This Metro bond measure is coming or this person needs to be elected versus the work of, you know, community organizing against a, a massive freeway industrial complex and changing the arc of how we do transportation and transportation reform. It, it, the timelines are so different. And I feel like it's interesting because you're sort of like, if I hear you right and if I'm observing you correctly, you're sort of bringing both of those things into this fight. It's like the direct, we must do something now. Let's be really loud. But then also building the relationships on the side. Yeah, I mean, if you want, if you know, choose your lefty goal. If you want fifteen dollars minimum wage, if you want healthcare for all, whatever Medicare for all, you have to engage in both the electoral politics and in the community organizing. Like both are necessary, mm. right? Like, right, right. and the direct actions, like Sunrise so, doing events outside of ODOT. What do you think about the fact that you know, compared to other efforts to fight freeways in the past, a huge difference is social media, which is something that you know, No More Freeways has absolutely taken full advantage of. And it's a force multiplier, obviously. It's just this amazing messaging tool. Like, I don't know, how how has being able to engage on there impacted the fight? And also, you know, what do you see some perils in this sort of like being only on social media or too much Twitter activism and not, you know, do you face do you face those kind of, you know, detractors? Yeah, no, um, I, I was actually having a conversation with my friend this weekend, less about the freeway fight specifically, but about this question of, um, in a lot of the youth climate organizing spaces I'm in, you know, um, Sunrise, especially national Sunrise has developed some like phenomenal pedagogies about doing community organizing around uh, social media. But, you know, Jonathan, to you and I, social media means Twitter, right? To like 22 year olds, yeah, it means part. TikTok, right? It means yeah. like Instagram is too old. Like what are your daughters on, right, Jonathan, right? Like, right. like, yeah. And there are some phenomenal videos that they like can make that really get at this, you know, but, but it's done from a different messaging and it's a different platform. And it's, and what I was saying earlier about the medium is the message, right? Like if I'm a 18 year old that like watches what the hell's happening to this planet right now, I'm certainly not going to trust any adults. And what do adults use? Like Facebook and Twitter? Like, no, I'm, but like if something comes in on TikTok with a young person speaking that way, like they're going to be like, Oh, like I can just already tell this is something that was designed by and for people like me, right? And, and yeah. I bring that up. And I, th- I bring that up just just to follow up on your question about social media to say that, like, hmm. um, as an organizer, it isn't. I, I, I we spend plenty of time on Twitter. Most of the work is not happening on Twitter. Most of the work is happening behind the scenes. Twitter is a way to meet people. I, you know, I've used Twitter to like meet someone. Hey, it seems like you're doing cool work. Can we? I'd love to learn more about you sometime. Right? Like. But, right. um, but I think it's a good illustration of a larger issue that I see, which is this gap, this gap between what people who are more online focused to generalize, let's call them younger people, uh, a gap between the urgency that they feel around these issues and the, the how excited they get to go against, you know, freeway supporters or ODOT or whoever it might be, the gap between them and then the actual, you know, the bureaucrats and the agency leaders, uh, the electeds, right? Because we see continually sort of a lack of urgency from them when it comes to weighing in on this stuff. And that's often a question for me. I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not quite one of the old folks. I'm sort of like not young still, but right. So I can kind of see both sides. And it's shocking to me, you know, where you have these electeds continue to sort of like pretty much support the status quo 
when you have no more freeways and everybody on Twitter and you know social media saying, "Oh my God, the you know climate arson, climate leaders don't widen free, you know, freeways, and all these things," so that gap is really there. And I think you know social media sort of accentuates that. But I also wonder for you, you know, how do you how do you bridge that gap a little bit? Because if if those older folks who don't really care as much about social media are the ones making the decisions, how are you going to make progress if you can't close that gap? Or sort of how do you close that gap? Yeah, I mean, we use social media. I um. So just a, a, as sort of the follow-up from the, the, the comment I was just making of just like um, there is very specific pedagogies around like community organizing. And by pedagogies, I mean like, you know, there was a generation of labor organizers that knew exactly, okay, you want to do a strike? You need to get X percentage of people to sign off your car. Like don't hold the vote until you've got X amount of pe- – like there was a playbook on what organizing like looked like right now. And, and some of those elders are often kind of like skeptical of social media because, you know, you're like, okay, you guys are good at comms, but you're all bark and you're no bite. And I think there are some valid critiques in that, but I also would think that like now current generations, the bark is louder (laughs) than it used to be and more and more powerful than it used to be because it used to be that you'd have to, you know, phone tree, right? Like, when I yeah. people that taught me community organizing, I would tell you these stories of showing up somewhere with this big book, and they'd be like, yeah. "Okay, we're having an event in two weeks. You have to call ten people, and those ten people each have ten people that they call." Wow. Like, imagine the world that we live yeah. in, Jonathan. Remember and, what it used to be with when we all had like landlines, right? Yeah, yeah. And just to make a point, you are turning out real numbers and real people to do real things. Thousands and thousands of comments constantly, you know, people sending messages to their legislators. So I don't want to, you know, that's, that's definitely happening. And that is part of it. So it is really kind of like, yeah, building, building a base of people that, that get this stuff. It's not all just online, but I know that that is kind of a, a gap there. So I want to switch over to kind of like state stuff specific in ODA. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say the way I see it on the state stuff, uh, you know, pushing the freeways, you got basically four parts: you got Oregon Transportation Commission, or Oregon Department of Transportation, Governor's Office, and you got you know legislators. From your perspective, you know which one is sort of the biggest help, which one's the biggest hurdle. You know, are all those just like throw them all out? We need to reform the whole thing. You know, where where are you at on sort of where the biggest uh, you know enemies or or allies are on those four? Um, that's a great question, Jonathan, and it's one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and I don't have I don't have uh succinct answers as much as um uh I do think that the state legislature is ultimately the ones with the purse strings and we this last session more than anything else it became very apparent to me how the two or three people at the top of the joint committee on transportation are the ones that are determining where the money goes and fascinating to me that representative Susan McLean has TV highway running through her district the most deadly roads in the entire state of Oregon. 40% of all traffic fatalities in Washington County happen on one road that bisects this um, legislator's district. She did not care about finding, prioritizing fighting for TV Highway the way that Representative Fahm fought for 82nd Avenue. She was one of the forces behind making sure that House Bill 3055 passed, which will allow ODOT to bond against future tolling, not even congestion pricing, future tolling. So ODOT's going to put on tolls not to minimize the amount of cars driving, but to maximize the amount of revenue bond against that for indefinite like 20 30 years just to build these massively oversized expansions uh at 205 at abernathy um and then in wilsonville and and um you know yikes those are big projects that's a lot of money that's like an odot slush fund into the indefinite future that was the legislature that 
pushed and made that happen. And that is under the, as far, I mean, the caveat, a lot of this is black box for us. Like I'm not in those meetings and they're obviously, you know, but it's very apparent to me that like, there is the road and freeway industrial complex that knew how to pick up the phones, that knew how to prioritize stuff. And at that same time, Senator Byer is the other person in that committee that was a very, you know, pushing and all that. And he was the one that was telling, you know, the street trust and the folks that were testifying on 395, sorry, we're broke. We can't pay for the, mm-hmm. the House or the Senate Bill 395, which was increasing the bike ped safe routes funding a certain amount, right? That the street trust was yeah. working on. So the legislature, I think, is where the money is. And I think always when you want to rob a bank, like when you want to, when you get when you want money, you got to go where the bank is, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I think that the uh, the OTC is could potentially be helpful someday. I feel like they were squirming a lot in some of the testimony we've provided. I think they realize that things aren't going well, but they also are in a position where they're just being told by the legislature what to do. Um, ODOT is ODOT doesn't have to be terrible, right? Like there is a deep state of ODOT currently. I. There are plenty of younger folks that work in different channels of ODOT that actually I think are like not terrible people and are actually trying to do the right stuff. ODOT has a remarkable Safe Routes program. It's just heavily underfunded, right? Like ODOT has pennies for some of these other little projects, whereas, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars for the big expansions. And so this question of of how, you know, I want a State Department of Transportation to exist that's funding uh, high, passenger rail up and down the Willamette Valley that's funding, you know, buses from Eugene to Bend to Baker City, right? Like, there are so many, like, we need a State Department of Transportation. They're just too road focused, and it will require systemic cleaning house that, you know, I will be a very difficult task. These are also spaces I would point out, too, that, like, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of shady ground of like who's getting contracts on all this ODOT stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think there are these meaningful questions of this agency just has not had any transparency or accountability. Like no one's paid attention to where ODOT mm-hmm. Everyone's like, well, we need more roads. That was such a like bipartisan, like it's not a, I point to like other state agencies, like the foster care system where people suddenly like poke around and they're like, this is a mess y'all. <laughs> like, mm. like, and it's really screwing over poor people in very specific mm. ways. Um, and I think that that urgency around ODOT, we're trying to cultivate that to get legislators and others to start paying attention to the fact that like, there needs to be these levels of reform for issues of air pollution, for climate, for congestion, for uh, jobs, right? Like none of ODOT stuff is, is like, there's so much of that that you could be like cultivating that level of energy around. Um, but, um, and what was the fourth one? OTC, ODOT, the legislature, and. Well, the governor's office, which I get, you know, is obviously sort of like the legislature, but. but the, not, governor... She, the governor has an ability to, to stand up and say things. And, she, you know, she, I think the way I see it, she's sort of, you know, part of the sort of Demo- you know, progressive Democrat blind spot around transportation. I mean, she just tweeted a photo a couple, you know, yesterday or, or you know, last week with. Sec- you know, USDOT Secretary Pete Buttigieg and, you know, all happy about changing the world. And I think she mentioned electrification of our transportation system, which is like, to me, is the least bold thing you could possibly be tweeting in a moment when you have actual potential momentum from the federal government to do bolder things. I mean, Buttigieg has freeway removal funds, you know, they're trying to put through. And here you have Governor Brown still not really going very far to reform and, and address the, the, the problems that you've been mentioning. And instead, she's using that that platform. And again, it's just one little snippet, but she's using that platform to talk about, hey, more electric cars and charging stations, which is, come on, we got to do more, right? I mean, so how do you explain that that blind spot and the fact that 
you know, Governor Brown has had so much trouble or so much reluctance in in entering into these reforms like like they've done with other other agencies. You know, transportation continues to be something they're not really moving on. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. And I, I would say that, you know, uh, there's a little bit of slack to be cut for the fact that Governor Brown's been very busy over the last year, as we all have. Right. Like uh, I would not wish her job on anyone. Um, and I, I would not necessarily say that I approve of, of how things have gone as much as that, like, you know, a lot of the systemic failures and difficulties, difficult decisions about opening and reclosing and schools and stuff uh, are indicative of the fact that there's just too much money slashing around Oregon politics. The wrong people have too much power. The wrong, mm-hmm. you know, um, the governor was faced with a bunch of unpopular, miserable choices. And and um, but bringing it back to transportation, I would say that, like, you know, during the chaos of the last couple of years, like the governor hasn't really had a transportation policy advisor really over the last couple of years. They, mm. She has somebody serving in that role now. And, um, but even so, like they're sort of that plus climate a little bit and they're kind of new to the ropes. Um, you know, the governor's only got about another year left. Right. Um, mm. And, and we just, um, we have not identified, like we are trying to build a zeitgeist around the fact that uh, reforming ODOT is something that the governor's has the opportunity to really, make a massive improvement in the quality of material quality of lives of Oregonians. Fortunately, we have what is appearing to be the first competitive gubernatorial race in like my lifetime in Oregon, if we're being honest, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We haven't actually had a democratic primary where it was like, you know, open seat, who wants it? We're going to see probably a dozen candidates step forward. Some of whom will be all over the political ideological spectrum. We've got some urban, some rural, you know, we've Casey Culler is, is running from Yamhill County, right? There will be more to come, but you know, I, I think that there represents a really awesome opportunity for transportation advocates to, um, and, and I'm working on some of this stuff and, and there'll be more soon, but um, how do we make sure that every candidate that runs for governor, Democrat and Republican, have been provided with sort of the white papers on like, here's what you could do to change how ODOT functions to make it transportation work better for Oregonians. And, and some of it's, yeah, the lefty, you know, climate environmental bike stuff that, you know, we're interested in some of it's like project labor agreements for transportation for TriMet, right? Like the governor appoints the TriMet board, the governor appoints, appoints the Oregon transportation commission. Think about how many wonky or, climate radical lefty folks that have every right to be like throwing down being like trying why the hell aren't we running a bus every five minutes like you know the governor has the opportunity to set the tone in the eight in the entities that oversee those other agencies and um right. i i think that there's uh just to your point about the governor's office it i i feel bad throwing governor brown under the bus because obviously she's has other things that have dictated her time here but mm-hmm. it is evident that there has been no leadership to really critique ODOT other than to just rubber stamp what they're putting forward. And that is no longer acceptable in 2021 when ODOT and the transportation is 40% of our carbon emissions. Uh, I want to get into something here around the specific fight on uh, I-5 Rose Quarter project, which has been obviously the focus of No More Freeways. There's a big element of that project that has to do with, you know, obviously a major element of that project has to do with the black experience in Portland, blackness itself, the fact that ODOT themselves built the freeway and subsequent developments rooted out a, a, a black community that lived in that spot. Uh, and it was displaced and has all these, uh, you know, wealth taken from them and all sorts of terrible implications of that. 
And so here we have no more freeways coming up and speaking as the loudest voice against the project. Uh, and obviously, you know, the founders of no more freeways are white people. Uh, and like we've talked about, your style is very uh, direct and, you know, uh, loud for if you know, lack of a better word. And so I was really taken uh, back in April at a meeting of one of the advisory committees, a specific committee that ODOT set up to talk about the Albina neighborhood's destruction. They call it, the Al ODOT calls it the Historic Albina Advisory Board, uh, and which is a committee set up of, of people from the neighborhood, uh, black people who have uh, family members that lived in part, some of the homes that were demolished to build the freeway. Um, and back in April, they had a meeting uh, you showed up to testify as, as you do, I think so did Joe Courtright. So after hearing a few of those comments uh, back at that April meeting, one of the one of the committee members named Estelle Lavspeer. Okay, so after uh, some of your testimony, uh, this is what she had to say. Uh, I'll just play the clip from uh, the, the Historic Albina Advisory Board member, Estelle Lavspeer, uh, talking, you know, responding to some of your testimony. I take great offense to some of the tone of these comments. The paternalistic tone um, that we as albina uh, residents or the descendants of albina residents would not not only be educated or not only have real life experience. We're not just sitting here as warm bodies. You don't need to tell us anything. You don't have to come here and tell me about my people or tell me about my neighborhood or tell me about anything. We are providing analysis. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm greatly offended. Hearing those words after your testimony, you know, how did that make you feel? How did, how did you respond to that? You know, um, there's a lot. I mean, uh, a couple different responses are just things to kind of keep in mind. Um, first of all, this is the third different committee that ODOT has brought to the table to try and like get folks to sign off on this project. Um, after the murder of George Floyd, ODOT has doubled down on the racial justice language. They are absolutely interested in messaging that this is economic development for a community and that the, that there will be significant improvements in minority contracting, which I think is an excellent laudable goal. Um, second, I would say that, you know, um, there's a lot of trauma right like this woman has been through some really nasty stuff with her and her family in terms of how the government has treated her and her community you know this was a neighborhood that went through systemic explicitly racist disinvestment and destruction right hundreds of homes were destroyed in the process of building all of these freeways because you know odot tore them all out um and you know, so when an individual gets asked, hey, by ODOT to like, hey, we're going to try and do it better, come join us. And they are not, you know, coming to this space immediately well versed in like, the critiques I have been making with ODOT and why should they, right? Um, and ODOT sets it up so that we get literally one minute of testimony that I don't even have a screen. And we're just trying to flag for them that ODOT is lying about stuff. And they're like, who the hell are these young or old grumpy white dudes shouting at me because ODOT promised me that things are going to get better, right? And 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 I will point out that Estelle in, pre in subsequent testimonies has come out swinging at ODOT being like, y'all have been lying to us, <laughs> right? Um, and I, I've had some, you know, uh, 
engagements with this person afterwards that have been much more productive and I, it's not necessarily appropriate to share or anything else as much as just to su- suggest that like it was ODOT's deliberate goal to pit and divide the community by having black contractors on one side and this kind of coalition of uh, admittedly white younger environmentalists as well as the black restorative justice work that Albina Vision is doing. The entire thing was set up for Estelle to have deep skepticism of what we were doing and ODOT was never interested in providing other mechanisms or forums for us to reach out, right? We had a previous community advisory committee last year that started asking spicy questions. So ODOT disbanded it, right? Like, like there is a deliberate, explicit effort here to by the state government to manufacture consent for this project. And, and I have, like, Estelle is uh, an exceptional person from the limited engagement I've had with her. I don't blame her for being, like, rolling her eyes at, like, the cranky old grumpy traffic scientists of Aaron and Joe showing up to just talk about stuff. But I also feel as though a universe in which there wasn't a pandemic in which these meetings were in person, Estelle and I could meet in person, shake hands. I would go speak to her for an hour and she might still be supportive of the project or skeptical, but there's a level of engagement there that ODOT is deliberately setting up circumstances that make it impossible for us to have those conversations. ODOT is not interested in restorative justice. They are interested in more lanes and branding ways to make it happen. Right, I, I I hear you. Your your critiques of ODOT are are well founded and understood. But to go back to Estelle specifically, those are the feelings she had. Does it change how you testify? Does it change your style at all? Have you you know have you connected with her about her specific concerns? Yes. No, I've connected with her specifically and I've, um, you know, it, it took a while and, and again, like I, I don't have her email, right? Like, like there's an effort of like, who do you know and who can connect you and how do you like make that sort of stuff? And, um, you know, and I, I, and it has changed. Absolutely. Like no more freeways has been like, all right, like, you know, if, if ODOT wants to play at this game, like, um, you know, we have to be strategic about which voices can speak up, but also there are also times where like, there are non-white voices that want no more freeways to speak up because other community groups have to like navigate these tensions as well. Right. Right. Like her, again, her feelings are valid. And, and I, I'm just suggesting that to, uh, to contextualize this whole moment, it Mm. didn't have to be this way. (laughs) Like, you know, a universe in which ODOT was more willing to play ball with the black community members they might still get extra lanes, but they might also allow space for black community members to be like, well, what if we did X, Y, and Z instead, right? Like hmm. in my conversations with a lot of folks, yeah, they don't, they don't, you know, culturally, they're, they're not coming from the same places that I do about why freeways are bad. But when I pitch them on like, wouldn't it be awesome if the bus ran every five minutes? If like, you know, many, many of your peers or elders and are having a tougher time getting around, you know, if you're in wheelchairs or you've got a mobility device, like some more sidewalks, some more crosswalks, making cars go slower more safe routes to school around Tubman, people are like, absolutely, right? And being able to articulate, well, the reason we don't spend the money on that is because ODOT is giving you one option here, and they're saying anyone that disagrees with it is being racist. (laughs) Her critiques are valid, but I would point out that, like, this is the manufactured inevitable result of a community engagement process designed to divide the community and pit people against each other instead of aiming for what are the solutions that meet our racial justice, climate justice, and transportation justice goals. Great. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just, can I just ask you like a, a like, how is this being funded? Like, are, are people donating? Like, how is this kind of happening be, beyond huh, your obvious just, you know, gifting all this work 
to the community in some ways. But how is this thing surviving financially? It's not, uh, I haven't seen big, huge grants come in and stuff like that. Again, we talked about how it's definitely more of a scrappy grassroots operations, not sort of an institutional nonprofit. So how are y'all faring financially? What's going on there? Um, that's a great question, Jonathan, and your listeners. I'm assuming many of your, it's like, it's like listening to community radio station, like funded by listeners like you. Um, but for real, I mean, um, we post on social media, like we're doing a fundraising drive. We'll get a couple $10 donations. We'll get a couple $50 donations. We'll get a couple hundred dollar donations. We'll get a couple thousand dollar donations. And uh, you know, the thousand and five thousand dollar donations, like they add up and they they mean a lot more to us in the long run. And you know, working with uh, Chris Smith on the on, on his Metro campaign last year, Chris kind of uh, really became a formidable fundraiser, and and he's been able to make some bigger asks that have have really uh, you know, many folks listening to this call know who they are, and and I am eternally grateful. I would also say too that like, you know, um, I write a lot of thank you cards. <laughs> we send a lot of buttons and stickers in the mail, and. Uh, you know, that act of doing it, A, it's just really humbling. And, and even if it gives me hand cramps, you know, just watching a Blazers game and just cranking out 30 cards, you know, every month or whatever it's, but the, but it's about building connections. Yeah. Okay. Last two things. And I want to, I want to give you a chance to mention the birthday thing coming up, but a uh, quick uh, summary where the fight is currently. What's, what's the latest? We are, uh, we filed two law. Well, we filed three lawsuits. Technically two of them are, sort of the same lawsuit, but we filed them in different courts because we weren't quite sure where it was going to go. The first one was the NEPA case, um, so the National Environmental Protection Act, so it was going after the feds and saying that ODOT did not follow the protocol that they needed. So all of you that wrote comments back in 2019, um, you know, during that spring public comment period, this is sort of the federal, like, um, engagement of that. Um, so we expect to know more in the next couple months. Um, the second one is, is uh, you know, ODOT made some big public statements that they uh that their plans were compliant with the city's plan part of the fight right now is is all of, is odat trying to like line up and being like look at all the you know we we checked all the boxes that we engaged all of these different groups and we we've proven that our plans you know the city said that they were going to do this within 10 years and this project is within that and us being like actually the version of the rose quarter that they signed off on was uh, a lot smaller than the one that you're pushing. And the city said they had to do congestion pricing first and you're not doing it. And, um, you know, and also the climate crisis, we understand it better. So, so three, so three lawsuits pending at the moment, working their way, y'all are working them. You've got your lawyers lined up, they've got theirs. Um, and then obviously the, the ongoing fights and the tracking meetings, which I always enjoy following. You, you do a great job live, uh, live tweeting those at the no more freeways PDX account. Um, tell me about this birthday event that's coming up. Is it August 26th? I believe, uh, you know, it was around late August, um, back in, uh, back in 2017 that we had our first meeting ever as No More Freeways when Chris Smith brought us all together to, uh, talk about how much this freeway was dumb and who wanted to fight it. I don't expect us to have a ton of programming as much as it's just great to get everybody in a room together again, knock on wood that the COVID variant stuff doesn't take off and we have to postpone it or, or rethink it. But, um, all I all I'm promising at this point is birthday cake, but uh, we will definitely have some birthday cake for no more freeways. Um, I hope anyone listening to this podcast is invited. We'll be at Lucky Lab, I think Thursday, August 26th, uh, from six to eight. Sounds good. I really appreciate you taking time to share all this uh, with us, Aaron, and uh, appreciate the work you're doing in the community as well. So thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of the Bike Portland Podcast. If you appreciated this podcast or any of the work we do on Bike Portland, please become a subscriber today. 
and stay tuned for more episodes.